0: Log talk radio
1: the B-I-B-L-E that's the book for me the B-I-B-L-E that's the book for me.
2: Ivle and Vico Fish, and thanks for listening to me, Melissa Cantrell, here on Truth Be Told Radio. I'm your host, and I'm going to start you off with the lesson. This is John MacArthur and the Master's Men.
3: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called God's Sufficient Word. It will help you see that for every concern you have, every decision, every struggle, every sorrow you face, the Bible has the wisdom you need. Request your free booklet by writing to word at gty.org. That's word at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur.
4: Open your Bible, if you will, with me, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. As we continue to progress through the gospel of Matthew, and Matthew unfolds to us the majesty of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in chapter 10 getting acquainted with the disciples. By the time we reach the 10th chapter of Matthew, our Lord is now appointing and sending the twelve to assist Him in the ministry of preaching the kingdom of God. You remember as chapter 9 concluded, the Lord looked out over the multitude. He saw them in their spiritual lostness, their pain, their frustration, their sorrow, He realized that there were so many to reach and so few laborers. At that point, in fact, it was him and him alone. And so he asked the disciples to pray at the end of chapter 9. And then in the opening verse of chapter 10, he called them to be the answer to their own prayer. And he sent them out to be his sent ones, for that's what apostle in verse 2 means. They started out as disciples, that means learner. They were sent as apostles. They became the ambassadors of the king, his representatives in the world, his laborers to reach and warn the harvest of coming judgment and of how they could escape by entrance into his glorious kingdom. Now, we've been focusing then, as we have begun to look at chapter 10, on the training of the twelve. The Lord's methods, techniques, principles, as He calls, trains, develops, sends out His apostles. This, in chapter 10, is really their first sending. Their final and official sending comes after the resurrection and the ascension. This is a preliminary sending, which basically is an internship for them. They go out, but not very far, and not alone, but rather two by two. He hovers over them as a mother eagle would hover over eagles learning to fly. They go out a little while, and they come back to him, and they learn in the process of field experience, later to be sent individually after he has already gone. And they ask the right questions when they come back, and their training becomes more intense in the months that follow this their internship. Now, as we look at the sending out that occurs in chapter 10, and as we see if we can't develop the principles of discipleship which our Lord gives us, we first of all are introduced to the individuals involved. And if you look at verses 2 through 4, you find the names of the twelve apostles. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, who was also known as Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Verse 5 says, these twelve Jesus sent forth. Verse 6 says, he told them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 7 says, that as you go, preach the kingdom. So these were the workers, the associates, the ambassadors of the king himself. Now, as we noted last week, their leader was Peter. That is why it says in verse 2, the first, Simon, who is called Peter. He is not the first one called. The first one called was John and associated with him, Andrew, in that initial encounter in John 1. Peter was not the first one called. He is first in this sense. It is the same word used in this statement by Paul. I am the chief of sinners. It means the foremost one, the primary one, the chief one. Peter was the leader. He was the out-front, up-front man. And so last time we studied Peter and his leadership ability and how the Lord refined and developed Peter into a leader that was useful. Now, for our study this morning, we want to come to the remaining three in the first group. Remember I told you there are always three groups in every list of the apostles. There are four lists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, and always in all four lists, there are the same three groups with the same four names in each group. And so we're looking at group one, and it is the most intimate group, Group two is the next most intimate, and group three is the least intimate of the twelve. The Lord Himself could not get close to even twelve men, but He could get close to four, and out of the four, particularly three. And so we're looking at this most intimate group. All came from the same town, all had the same profession, and all were in the first group called to Christ. And we ask ourselves this question, and I want you to keep asking it as we look at these three names this morning. What kind of people can God use? That's the issue. What kind of people can God use in His ministry? What kind of people can change the world? What kind of people can preach the gospel of the kingdom so that souls are saved? What kind of people does God ordain for His purposes? Now usually when we think about Peter, Andrew, James and John, we have that view of stained glass saints, people who are on a completely different plane than we are. And to make it worse, we call them St. Paul, and we name cities after them: St. Peter's, or St. Petersburg, or St. Andrew's, which is a city in Scotland, or St. James, which is a common name for cities or Jamestown, or whatever. And do you know there are more people in the United States named John than any other name? It's a wonderful name. And Peter and James and Andrew, we name people after those names with great respect because these are respected individuals. Cathedrals are named after these individuals. And we think of these particular four as something other than ourselves, in a different dimension of time and space, in another world. They have an aura about them. Frankly, that's really not the way it ought to be. They're very common men with a very uncommon calling, but they're very much like we are, and they demonstrate to us the kind of people God uses. See if you find yourself among them. Last time we learned that God uses people like Simon, impulsive, Dynamic, impetuous, strong, initiators, bold, who very often talk a better game than they play. The dynamic kind. Oh, he uses those kinds. But let's meet the second in the list. Andrew, his brother. Andrew, Peter's brother. By the way, his name means manly. He, too, was a native of Bethsaida, that little village in Galilee, and he, like his brother, was a fisherman. In fact, in Matthew 4, he was down at the sea. When Jesus came along, he had already met Jesus. He had already believed in Jesus. He had already affirmed Him as the Messiah. But after going back to his fishing, now the Lord appears again to him at the shore and calls him permanently to follow, and he will make him a fisher of men. Prior to coming to follow Jesus Christ, he had been a pious Jew. He had been a godly Jew. He had been a God-fearing Jew. He had also been a disciple of John the Baptist. In fact, it was one day at the message of John the Baptist that his life was changed. For John the Baptist saw Jesus in John 1 and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew was there that day along with John, who was also a fisherman and surely an acquaintance as well as was James. And he and John heard John the Baptist say that, and they followed after Jesus immediately. And Jesus turned and said to them, "'What seek ye?' And they replied, "'Where do you dwell?' And they went where Jesus dwelt, and they spent the entire day with Him, And those hours were the crisis in their spiritual history. And when they came out of that day spent with the Lamb of God, immediately it says that Andrew opened his mouth and said these first words, We have found the Messiah. No sooner did Andrew discover the reality of Jesus Christ for himself than that he announced to his brother Peter that very phrase, We have found the Messiah. Peter and Andrew lived together, it says in Mark 1.29, and no doubt they shared everything. And especially did Andrew want to share with him the Messiah. And so from this very beginning, he becomes a part of that intimate four. In fact, if you study through the New Testament, it's James and Peter and John, and Peter, James and John, and John and Peter and James, they're always the inner circle, and nobody is ever let into that inner circle except when Andrew gets in, and it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. He was in the most intimate four, but he never quite cracked that inside three, but he was greatly respected. In fact, Philip, who was in group two, a little less intimate with the Lord, One time had some Greeks come to him and say, we want to see Jesus. And you know where Philip took them? He took them to Andrew. Why? Because I guess Philip thought that if you want to get to Jesus, all you got to do is get to Andrew. Andrew was intimate with Jesus. And Andrew was respected. And even yet, he still isn't in the inner three. But all of a sudden in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, Andrew begins to emerge from the background. And we see Andrew three times in the gospel of John. And all three times, Andrew is doing the same thing. It's easy to characterize him. The first time is in John chapter 1, verse 40, which I just reported to you. It says in John 1, 40, One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak, and that would be John and Andrew, followed him. And he was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And by the way, Andrew is always called Simon Peter's brother, with I think one or two exceptions. Maybe just one. That's always how he's identified. And he first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah which is being interpreted to Christ, the anointed one. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, if you want to know how to characterize the life of Andrew, it's very simple. He is the one who was always bringing people to Jesus. The second time we see him is in the sixth chapter of John and the eighth and ninth verse. A vast multitude of people are gathered. Jesus is teaching. It's late in the day. The crowd is hungry. There's not enough food. And Andrew brings to Jesus, this time a little boy. And the little boy has five loaves and two fish. It doesn't mean five big loaves of bread. It means five little flat barley crackers and two fish, and they would take those fish and they would pickle them, and they would eat them with the crackers. So he brought a little fellow with five barley crackers and two pickled fish. He brought him to Jesus. I guess Andrew must have thought that the Lord could make a whole lot out of a very little. The third time we meet him is in John 12 and I've already alluded to that incident, and in John chapter 12 and verse 20, Philip is approached by the Greeks or the Gentiles, and they want to see Jesus, and Philip tells Andrew, and together they went to Jesus, the assumption being that they took the folks there too, So, whenever you see Andrew, he's involved in finding Jesus so that Jesus can meet someone, bringing people to Jesus. I guess maybe he didn't think there was anybody that Jesus didn't want to see, or there was anything Jesus couldn't respond to, or there was any problem Jesus couldn't solve, because he's characterized as the one who brought men to Christ. Now, in these three incidents, if I can just sort of draw some pictures for you. In these three incidents, several things become clear. First of all, we see Andrew's openness. He knew that they were to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He knew that primarily it was the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And yet he also got the Spirit of our Lord, because the Lord originally had revealed His Messiahship to a half-breed Samaritan woman. So, Andrew was never choked by a hyper-Judaism. I mean, he didn't have any problem at all with bringing some Gentiles to Jesus. we sense a little of the openness of his heart. There just wasn't anybody outside. There wasn't anybody that he didn't think Jesus would not want to see. We also see his faith. He had a simple faith. I don't know what he was thinking when he brought those five crackers and two fish with such a huge crowd. I don't know what he was trying to do, running around looking for whoever had a lunch but he must have had some kind of faith to believe that the Lord could do something with that. After all, he had seen Jesus make wine. Why couldn't he make food? A third thing we see is not only his openness and his faith, but we see his humility. I mean, he spent his whole life being known as Simon Peter's brother. You can believe it. And now when he found the Messiah, there might have been a temptation to say, Boy, now I'm not telling Peter. This is my chance to be somebody. But no, no, he runs to get Peter, knowing full well that as soon as Peter enters the group, he will run the group. Because that's Peter. And Andrew will be right back where he's always been as Simon Peter's brother but he thought more of the work to be done than who was in charge. He thought more of the cause of the eternal virtue of the kingdom than he did of his personal and petty problems. Sad to say, but there are some people who won't play in the band unless they can beat the big drum. James and John had that problem, didn't they? But not Andrew. I don't find Andrew fighting about who's going to get the glory in the kingdom. You see, Andrew is the picture of all those who labor quietly in humble places. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Andrew is not the pillar like Peter, James, and John. He is a humbler stone. He could have anticipated the sentiment of the poet Christina Rossetti who wrote, Give me the lowest place. Not that I dare ask for that lowest place, but thou hast died that I might live and share thy glory by thy side. Give me the lowest place, or if for me the lowest place is too high, then make one more low, where I may sit and see my God and love him so. That's Andrew. I mean, after all, he was one of the original two called, and yet he wasn't in the inner three, but it didn't seem to bother him. He was always Peter's brother. He's one of those rare people who's willing to take second place. One of those rare people who wants to be in support. One of those rare people who doesn't mind being hidden. As long as the work is done. He's the kind of man that all leaders depend on. He's the kind of person that everyone knows is the backbone of every ministry. The cause of Christ is dependent, beloved, on self-forgetting souls who are content to occupy a small sphere and an obscure place free from self-seeking ambition, and yet he will sit on the throne judging the tribes of Israel. Daniel MacLean, a Scotsman who has a special affection for Andrew, who has become the patron saint of Scotland, writes about his beloved apostle these words, Gathering together the traces of character found in Scripture about Andrew, we find neither the writer of an epistle, nor the founder of a church, nor a leading figure in the apostolic age, but simply an intimate disciple of Jesus Christ, ever anxious that others should know the spring of spiritual joy and share the blessing he so highly prized, a man of very moderate endowment who scarcely redeemed his early promise, simple-minded and sympathetic without either dramatic power or heroic spirit, yet he had that clinging confidence in Christ that brought him into that inner circle of the twelve, a man of deep religious feeling with little power of expression. He was more magnetic than he was electric, better suited for the quiet walks of life than the stirring thoroughfares. Yes, Andrew is the apostle of the private life. God uses people like that, And only God can calculate their value. Because sometimes it takes an Andrew to reach a Peter. There's an early Methodist preacher, and I found his biography in a very obscure book, and I know no one's ever heard of him. His name was Thomas Mitchell. You never heard of him? I had never heard of him. But he was an Andrew. And he died, and the Conference of Ministers who ministered with him, wrote his obituary. And this is what it said. Thomas Mitchell, an old soldier of Jesus Christ, a man of slender abilities as a preacher and who enjoyed only a very defective education. How's that for an obituary? Slender abilities and a defective education. And yet one friend wrote this. His earnest and loving work caused him to lead many people to Christ. A man of slender abilities and defective education, yet he was the means in God's hands of bringing to Christ one of the greatest of early preachers by the name of Thomas Olivers, the writer of the great hymn, The God of Abraham Praise. A man of slender abilities? That is the official record, and yet one of the strongest and most faithful souls who ever lived. It was he who went to the little village of Wrangell in Lincolnshire, and arose at five o'clock in the mornings to preach the gospel in the open air. And so fiery was his preaching that he was arrested. And in the midst of his arrest, a mob attacked him. He was taken to the public house, and the curate of the village was consulted as to what to do with him. He said, don't let him go, and so they decided they'd put him in the pond. They took him to a pond which was full of filth, and they threw him in. He tried to get out, and seven times they threw him back in. Then he was taken again to the public house, having been in the meantime painted from his head to foot with white paint. Then they didn't know what to do with him, so they decided to drown him. They dragged him to a railed-in small lake outside the village, which was at least ten feet deep, and they took him in their arms and threw him into the water. He sank to the bottom, and when he came up to the surface, a man in the crowd with a long pole and a hook on the end played with him as if he were a fish. They brought him out more dead than alive, and he was taken to a little house in the village where he was looked after by a pious lady. But when the mob found that he was recovering, they sought him out and went to the house and to his bedside and said they would rend him limb from limb unless he promised never to preach again to which he said, I can promise no such thing. And somehow or other he got away from the place and he made this record of the whole incident. He wrote, all the time God kept me in perfect peace and I was able to pray for my enemies. doesn't sound like a man of slender abilities to me. No one knows about him. No one ever heard of him. He ministered in obscurity as a faithful man. God needs Thomas Mitchells. God needs Andrews. People who quietly, obscurely bring others to Jesus. There's a third name in the first group, James, the son of Zebedee. In two lists out of the four lists of the twelve, he is next to Peter. Yet we know very little about him. In fact, Note this. He never appears alive in the Gospels apart from John, his brother, in any incident. They're inseparable in the Gospels. Now, I believe that it's important to note that he's always mentioned before John. And it probably not only indicates that he was older, but that he was the leader of this rather dynamic duo. He is the strength. He is the zeal. He is the passion. Now, these brothers, James and John, were also fishermen, and their father was Zebedee, and Zebedee was a fairly well-to-do man because he employed hired servants in his business. So they had a pretty good fishing business going up there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And James fits into this first group because he was in the early calling. John and Andrew were the first two and certainly James would be so close to John that he worked his way into that intimacy. Now, as you look at the Bible in terms of incidents, James appears more as a silhouette than a photograph, and so you have to kind of get an imagery just without all of the fullness of what might have happened. But I think the best way to look at James is to is to consider what the Lord named him and his brother John. In Mark 3:17, Jesus gave them a name. He called them boanerges, which means sons of thunder, sons of thunder. If James is the leader, and that that is indicated by the fact that he appears first, then he was a son of thunder. Now, he must have been a passionate, zealous, fervent, wild-eyed, ambitious, aggressive guy. To give you a classic reason why, in Acts, Herod decided to vex the church and the first guy he went after was James and he chopped off his head and they took Peter and put him in jail. Which indicates that Peter was not as big a problem as James. I mean, when you capture James and Peter and kill James and let Peter live, that says something about the kind of man James must have been. Strong man zealous man. He was perhaps the New Testament counterpart of Jehu, who said, come see my zeal for the Lord, and then uprooted the house of Ahab and swept all the Baal worshipers out of the land. This guy made enemies fast. Fourteen years, he was dead. I mean, he was the first disciple to be martyred. They got rid of him quick. He was a real problem, thunderous individual, and he must have had his zeal fed daily by the one who said, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. I mean, I can just see him when the Lord takes out a whip, you know. Do it, Lord, do it. You know. Give it to him. Just zealous, you know. Zeal is a great virtue. You love someone who's aggressive and who's, who's um, charged up and who wants to get the job done, but very often coming along with zeal comes a lack of wisdom. And sometimes you're shooting off your mouth and your guns are blazing before you've really thought the thing through. You say, can God use somebody like that? Well, yes, He did, as a matter of fact. Several incidents stand out, and I'll show you where James is mentioned and the way he acts. Luke 9, Luke 9, verse 51, came to pass when the time was come that Jesus should be received up time to move toward the passion week set his face to go to jerusalem he sent messengers before his face the messengers are going now into samaria to prepare the way and they entered into a village of samaria to make ready for him they wanted the samaritans to hear the message christ was coming the messiah was coming and they didn't receive him because his face was as though he would go to jerusalem listen samaritans just hated the Jews and Jerusalem, they had their own place of worship, Mount Gerizim. They probably chased these messengers out with curses and stones. They probably threw stones at them. And so the messengers come back and say, they're not going to receive you in such and such a village. And in verse 54, we meet the sons of thunder. And when his disciples, James and John, saw that, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? even as Elijah did, Lord, let's just burn them up. Burn them up. Great missionary heart. (laughs) Just get all the unsaved and consume them, Lord, just like Elijah did. You see, you can identify with who James' heroes were. And so Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what manner of spirit you have. This is not the spirit for now. Elijah's spirit does not apply now. This is not a time for judgment on an ungodly heretical nation. This is time for the proclamation of a new covenant. You're out of sync, guys. I mean, your basic character is leaking through. Burn them up. That isn't the idea. For the Son of Man isn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So they just went to another village. Jesus rebuked them strongly. They were hateful. They were intolerant. James had so much zeal and so little sensitivity. I mean, what kind of an evangelist would he make? And yet I have to admit there's a touch of nobility in it. I'm glad that he got mad when the Lord was dishonored. I would hate to have seen him pass without a reaction at all. He was zealous. He was explosive. He was fervent. He was passionate. I mean, he didn't just sit and watch it happen. Look at another incident Matthew 20. Very often, zealous people are also ambitious people. They're very goal-oriented, very task-oriented. And so, this is the incident we looked at in reference to the disciples in general a couple of weeks ago. But just a reminder... Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons. And they're dragging along on her skirt tails. And they wanted something. And so she says to the Lord, um, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Would you put my boys on the two thrones next to you? I mean, the implication is, it's obvious to you that they're the cream of the crop, isn't it? A mother, right? My children are gifted... Isn't it apparent? I mean, we can see it. Zebedee and I. I mean, and they're the ones who have the zeal. You say, what about Peter? Listen, Peter had a lot of zeal, but I mean, he also had some problems. I mean, he would deny and bail out. James does not seem to have that same problem. Peter... Um, faltered here and there, but it seems as though James was just resolute. He just, I mean, he was dead in 14 years. I mean, he just, they got rid of him fast. He didn't knuckle under at all. He didn't equivocate. He didn't compromise. And boy, he could see his ambition. I'm going all the way for the kingdom, man, and not only to the kingdom, but right to the right hand. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Oh, sure we can. All right, you will. In verse 24, the fever pitch was reached in the argument over who was going to get what in the kingdom. They all started arguing. And Jesus went into a little lecture on what real leadership is. But they were ambitious. James was ambitious. This is a terrible thing for them to do, to arouse the spirit of rivalry, to clamor for honor from the Lord. These who were the persecutors of the Samaritans are now ambitious, self-seeking place hunters, stalking the favor of the Lord as if He were some despotic ruler who could dispense His patronage on some kind of principle of favoritism. They were demeaning Christ and His kingdom. Well, James had zeal. He had great fervor. He knew the Lord's special interest in him. He was in the inside group. He felt he ought to have an equal reward for all of his capability. And the Lord reminded him, you'll get a reward, James, but it won't be what you think. Before you get your throne, you're going to get a cup, and you're going to drink it all away. And the cup is suffering, because the way to the throne is always the way of the cross. And James, as I said, 14 years later, got his request. He wanted a crown. Jesus gave him a cup. He wanted power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted a rule. Jesus gave him a martyr's grave. Look at the one incident in the Bible where he appears alone, Acts 12. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And when Herod wanted to attack the church, he went right for the main guy, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's who you go for first. And he put Peter in prison. And apparently, he didn't even think about Peter until he was told that it would please the Jews if he did that. It was James he was after, the son of thunder. He was filled with zeal. He was filled with ambition. He was filled with strong and intolerant feelings. He didn't like things outside his own sympathy. And Christ had to harness all of that and make all of that into something useful and make him a pillar in the church. What kind of people does God use? Oh, He uses the great leaders like Peter. He uses the quiet, behind-the-scenes, obscure faithful people like Andrew, and he also can use the brash, courageous, ambitious, zealous, sometimes loveless, insensitive, selfish people like James. Because Christ brought his temper under control, he bridled his tongue, he directed his zeal, he taught him to seek no revenge and desire no honor for himself, and finally came to the place where James was willing to die for Jesus. So both the brothers drank the cup. For John, the cup was a a long life of rejection and a death in exile. For James, it was a short flame and martyrdom. The Romans had a coin years ago, and on the coin was an ox. And the ox was facing an altar and a plow. And under the ox it said, ready for either. And that's how it is in service for Christ, and that's how it was for the sons of thunder. There is the moment dramatic sacrifice on the altar. That was James. And there is the long furrow of the plow. That was John. But both of them drank the cup. James had to learn sensitivity. He had to learn to quiet his ambition. But he did, and God used it. You know, a lack of sensitivity can just destroy a ministry. There are many people who try to serve Christ who are utterly insensitive to their congregations, to their families, to the people around them. One such man was a Norwegian pastor. His story is very interesting. He had a motto. His motto was, all or nothing, all or nothing. And he went around preaching and hurling out lightnings and screaming thunders on everybody. He was... Um, stern and strong and powerful and uncompromising and utterly insensitive. I mean, they said that he, his, his people in the church didn't even care for him because he didn't care for them. He was so ambitious, he wanted to advance the kingdom, he wanted to uphold the standard of God, and he was just blind to anybody else. It came down to his own family. And he had a little girl, just a little tiny girl, who was ill, And the doctor said, you must take her out of the Norwegian cold where she can come to a warmer climate so she can regain her strength or she will die. To which he answered, all or nothing, and stayed, and she died. And when she died, the mother was so distraught and so shattered, she found no love in her husband but had doted all of her love on this little life that she would sit for hours in a chair holding the clothes of the little baby and fondling them, feeding her starved heart on those empty garments. This didn't go on for many days until her husband took them all out of her hand and gave them to a poor woman in the street. But his wife had tucked underneath her a little bonnet, which she kept as the last vestige of a memory. He found that and gave that away, too, and gave her a speech on all or nothing, And in months, she died of grief. What stupid insensitivity. That kind of thing unmellowed is only tragic. You can be insensitive to the people around you in a tragic way. I think of Billy Sunday, the great evangelist. All of his children died in unbelief, all of them. Utterly insensitive to the ones around him while he was winning the world. There are many pastors and evangelists and Christian people who aren't even listening to what's going on in their own house and the people around them who are so oriented to the task that they miss the people. Zeal within sensitivity is so cruel and James had to be refined. I mean, he had to get from the place where he said, just burn them up, Lord, if they don't cooperate. Burn them up. To the place where he cared. Now, if you're going to ask me, you're going to force me to the corner and ask me to choose, I'll take a man of a flaming, burning, intolerant, passionate enthusiasm with a potential for failure rather than a cold, compromising milk toast about which his brother John said God would spew him out of his mouth. Give me a fiery heart. Give me a flaming heart because those people will set the world on fire, but give me one with sensitivity. What kind of men does God use? What kind of women does God use? What kind of people fit into the plan? Dynamic people like Peter, leaders who can get everybody to do it. Humble people like Andrew who just do it quietly behind the scenes. And James who don't really lead other people to do it. They just do it with zeal and passion. See, you mean the Lord can use all those kind of people? You don't have to be born with a halo? You don't have to be on a stained glass? You can be just a person, person. These are very common people because he can transform all of those things. Finally, the last individual, and we're not going to spend much time on him. We'll see him. He intersects the story throughout the New Testament because of the fact that he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. But I want to have you at least briefly meet John, his brother, James' brother. Now, may I hasten to add, we think about John, we think about some meek, mild, pale-skinned, effeminate guy lying around with his head on Jesus' shoulder, sort of looking up with a dove-eyed stare, with little skinny arms, you know. And you've missed it, folks, if that's what you think. He was in all those incidents about James that I just read you, And he was one of the sons of thunder. He was intolerant. Burn him up, Lord. He was ambitious. I want the seat on your right and left. He was zealous. He was explosive. But I think not quite as much as James. James seems to be the prominent one. And John does seem to have a side to him. I mean, at least John lasted. He lived... to. Till nearly the year 100, he outlived everybody. He was explosive, too. Now, it's interesting to note that the only time he appears alone by name in the Gospels, you know what he's doing? He's mad at somebody. That's right, John. Who's he mad at? Some guy who was casting out demons. In Mark 9, why was he mad? He said to Jesus, he said, there is a man casting out demons, and he's not in our group. He's not in our group. I I forbade him to do that. I told him, listen, fella, cool it. You're not in our group. He was sectarian. I mean, he was narrow-minded. A couple of weeks ago, a series was done in a school in, in our country and the title of the series was The Heresy of MacArthurism. And so I found out about this, and I asked somebody, what is the heresy? And and they said, well, they asked the source involved, and they said that it was that you're not a member of their group. Therefore, you must be wrong. And that was the bottom line. Well, that's a strange view. They should read Mark 39, uh, 9, 40 and John says, Lord, I told him to be quiet because he wasn't in our group. Now, wait a minute. That's unbending. That's narrow. That is ridiculous intolerance. Well, that was John. But you know something? That became a strength in his character. Because he also had a tremendous capacity for love. And you show me a man who has a great capacity for love and no sense of the truth and no limits, and no guidelines, and no strong convictions, and I'll show you a disaster, of tolerance and sentimentality. So God knew that the greatest source of truth in the New Testament, as far as a human author is concerned, about love, would have to be a man who was also strong and uncompromising, or his love would take him down the road of sentimentalism. And if he was to speak the truth in love, he had to be as much committed to the truth as he was to love. And so you find two things that stand out in John's life, the word love and the word witness. Eighty times he uses the word love, seventy sometimes the word witness in one form or another. He was always the witness to the truth and always the teacher of love, and so he is the personification of speaking the truth in love. It's so good that his love was controlled by his witness, by his truth. He was a truth seeker. He wanted to know the truth. He was a discoverer. He was a visionary. He it was who first recognized the Lord at the lakeside of Galilee. He it was to whom God revealed the future in the apocalypse. He was the seer, the visionary, the truth seeker. The reason he was hanging around Christ's breast was not some kind of sloppy, sickening sentimentalism. What it was was that his heart literally hungered for the truth as well as the deep affection for Christ. He wanted to gather in every word that came out of his Lord's lips, as well as bask in the light of his love. So he became a lover, but a lover whose love was controlled by the truth. And that control was born out of that tremendous zeal he had in his personality, that passion, that strength, that fiery character. And in case you don't think he is, you try reading 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and see how he denounces those who are antichrist. And those who will stand up in church, in the church to twist and pervert. He's firm. He's strong. You read the gospel of John and see how he sets the people of God against the people of Satan. The redeemed against the lost. How he talks about the judgment of the, the righteous and the unrighteous. The man knew where the lines were drawn and his love is never sentimentalism. But he is characterized by love. You just don't see much about him in the other Gospels unless it's with James, as I showed you, or in the list of the group. But where he emerges is in his own Gospel, and he appears in his own Gospel several times, always the same way. How? Listen. John 13:23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. He never uses his name. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now listen, the man had a heart of love, and a man who has a heart of love understands love and has a great capacity to give and receive love. People who can love greatly can be loved greatly because they understand. And John literally took in the love of Christ and gave out the love of Christ. So he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the only thing he ever called him. In the 19th chapter, in the 26th verse, he appears again. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved. Same disciple whom Jesus loved. Chapter 20, verse 2. Then runs and comes to Simon Peter. Mary Magdalene does. And to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Chapter 21, verse 7. Same thing. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter. Verse 20, Peter turning about sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. Verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies these things. It is the disciple who Jesus loved that wrote the Gospel of John. That's what he said. He literally was in awe of the fact that Jesus loved him. And it wasn't a sickly sentimentalism. It wasn't that he said, oh, I'm so wonderful. The Lord loves me so much. I just want you to know I'm the disciple he loved. No, no, no. It was the very opposite. I the one who wanted to burn up all the Samaritans. I, the one who wanted Jesus to give me the place I didn't even deserve. I am one whom He loves. It's a celebration of grace. Jesus never had to ask John if He loved him, but He did have to ask Peter that. Jesus never had to ask John to follow Him, but He did have to ask Peter that. And when it came down to passing out the work, He said to Peter, feed my sheep. He said to John, take care of my mother. There was something special about John. Tradition tells us John never left the city of Jerusalem until Mary, the mother of Jesus, died because he kept his vow to the Lord. So John was a son of thunder, but he was a tender, loving man who would never compromise his convictions. He taught on love. You could summarize the theology of John about love into ten statements He taught that God is a God of love. He taught that God loved His Son, that God loved the disciples, that God loves all men, that God is loved by Christ, that Christ loved the disciples in general, that Christ loved individuals, that Christ expected all men to love Him, that Christ taught that we should love one another, and that Christ emphasized that love is the fulfilling of the whole law. And those themes run through all of His writings. And you can also see the truth there, too. You hear the word witness again and again and again and again as he affirms the witness, the witness, the witness to the truth. He speaks of the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the Scripture, the witness of the Father, the witness of Christ, the witness of the miracles, the witness of the Holy Spirit, and the witness of the apostles. Always speaking truth, speaking truth in love. And so the Lord can use that kind of man, a man with a great love. There are the James who just lived their life on passion, zeal, fervor, fire, sparks flying everywhere. And there are the Johns who can harness the truth in love. And they'll last and attract people to Christ. And God uses all kinds. A fiery lover whose love was a passionate devotion to the truth. He lived to be an old man but he was always a son of thunder. Let me close with this. So what kind of people does he use? What kind of people does he draw into intimacy with him? Who are these stained glass saints? What do you have to be to get really close to Jesus? Think of this now. When God came into the world and walked in this world, God, the God of the universe, the living, eternal, almighty, holy God, when he walked in this world, he picked out four people to be close to him. Four men to be close to him. Four men to be his intimates. One was dynamic, strong, bold, a leader like Peter, who took charge, who initiated, who planned, who strategized, who confronted, who commanded people to Christ, and very often blew it. Another was humble, Gentle, inconspicuous, Andrew, who didn't see the crowds, but he saw the individuals in the crowds. And while he never attracted a mob, he kept bringing people to Jesus. And then he picked a man who was zealous, passionate, uncompromising, insensitive at first, ambitious, who could see a goal and go for it with all his might, and die in the process. James. And then there was sensitive, loving, believing, intimate John. Every bit a truth seeker who spoke the truth in love so that he attracted people to himself. And he made them into fishers of men in spite of what they were. Peter was finally crucified upside down by his own request while unwavering in his faith in Christ. Andrew, tradition tells us that Andrew had the privilege of preaching in a province, and the governor's wife received Jesus Christ as her Savior, and the governor was so upset that he demanded his wife reject Christ, and when she wouldn't, he crucified Andrew. Tradition says he crucified him on an X. That's why X is the symbol of Andrew, an X-shaped cross. And the traditional history tells us that he was on that cross for two days, and as he hung alive for all those two days, he preached without ceasing the gospel of Christ in the midst of his agony. Still trying to bring people to Jesus. Tradition tells us that James, when he was on the way to being beheaded by the Roman sword, had along the guard who had guarded him, and the guard was so impressed with his courage and constancy and zeal that he repented of his sin and fell down at the Apostle's feet and asked if the, if the Apostle would forgive him for the part he had played in the rough treatment James received, at which point James lifted the man up, embraced him, kissed him, and said, Peace, my son, peace to thee and the pardon of thy faults. The tradition says immediately the officer publicly confessed his surrender to Christ and was therefore beheaded alongside James. John? banished to the Isle of Patmos after a long life, died around 98 A.D. during the reign of Trajan. And those who knew him best said, the echo of a constant phrase was their reminder of John, and this was the phrase, my little children love one another. What a group. Ordinary, with all the struggles, all the strengths and weaknesses of men like us, Yet in the power of Christ they were transformed. What kind of people does God use? Any kind. Listen to this now. It is not what you are. It is what you are willing to become that is the issue. See? The fishermen of Galilee did become fishers of men on a most extensive scale, and by the help of God they gathered many souls into the church In a sense, they're casting their nets into the sea of the world still. And by the testimony to Jesus they gave in the gospel and the epistles, they are bringing multitudes to become disciples of Him among whose first followers they had the happy privilege to be numbered. Listen, Christ can take a very common person and make them a very uncommon apostle. Are you available for that? Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for a glimpse of these dear men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. How special. Not what they were, but what they were willing to become. We see ourselves in them, and it gives us hope that you can make us what you want us to be and use us. We pray, Lord, that we might be available to be disciples. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen.
3: You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
2: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook Like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com, that is, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M, truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O Once again, that is Truth, The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Cantroa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S M I L E S A N D S T U F F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
5: the generations of this is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word an increasing number of professing evangelicals now deny the historicity of the first man Adam and this shouldn't surprise us these Christians have already accepted millions of years and evolution so Adam is next to go But Genesis treats Adam not as a symbol or just a population of evolved humans. He's a real historical person. Here's one example. The book of Genesis is tied together with the phrase, these are the generations of, and one of those generations is Adam's, another is Noah's, and another is Abraham's. Few evangelicals doubt the historicity of Abraham, so why doubt Adam, one of Abraham's ancestors?
6: Discover more about the truth of God's Word beginning in Genesis when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
4: I'm
7: news out of Haiti, the largest, most powerful earthquake in the region's
6: history. As a federal judge's ruling is allowed to stand. This year's National Day of Prayer could likely be the country's last. I will be done. I'm blessed. I still need
7: heaven. The number of people worldwide has reached one billion for the first time since 1970. For a sixth day, a daily bread. And forget what
0: just A
7: few moments ago, something crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. But deliver was from
8: evil, for is the kingdom and the power, and the glowing forever. Amen. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings around me.
5: Adam, he was a historical person. This is Ken Ham, author of the commentary for families on Genesis, creation to Babel. An increasing number of Christians now believe that Adam was just the descendant of ape-like creatures that died out. But think about that. If Adam is the product of evolution, then death existed long before Adam. But the Bible teaches that death is a consequence for Adam's sin. In Genesis, God tells Adam the punishment for disobedience is death. In Romans, the Apostle Paul links Adam's sin with why we sin and die today. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul connects Adam's death with Jesus' death to save us. But if Adam is a product of evolution, then none of this is true because death would have existed for millions of years before Adam's sin.
6: You'll find answers to your questions about Genesis, creation, evolution, and more at AnswersRadio.com. And subscribe to receive free daily insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. We kick get old school. We kick get old school. We
1: kick get old school. Old school come on come on don't miss the latest craze hit it for a minute then it's on to the next phase easy come
8: easy go the marketers will hack it
1: Moldy piece of bread We're with the Holy One the
5: Adam the ape-man and Eve the ape-woman. <laughs> this is Ken Ham, and we've produced a family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. Over the past few years, I've been increasingly hearing the claim from Christians that humans evolve. They take evolutionary ideas and just say God directed the process. But does the biblical text allow for this? Absolutely not. You see, each kind, plant or animal, was created to reproduce according to its kind. One kind can't change into another kind, and scripture plainly states that Adam was the first man and Eve was the mother of all the living, so there couldn't have been anyone before them. Also, Adam was created from dust, not some kind of ape-like creature, and Eve was created from Adam's rib, not an ape woman. Adam and Eve did not evolve.
6: There's so much more to discover about Genesis, Adam and Eve, creation, and more at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
9: Yeah. He made us all, yo. Yeah. God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No.
10: are never the same person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go.
7: yeah. We all different
10: that Jesus left out because Jesus died and rose from the grave all those who trust in the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation chapter number 7 the church from all times is gathered in heaven each tribe and people language and nation all thanking God for the gift of salvation together forever with saints of all kinds through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine this is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you let's go the
7: God made,
9: yeah. and, and yeah. uh, yeah. God made me and you For our joy and for his glory God made me and you God made me and you Different colors and different shades All differently and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God displayed God made me and you For all about you, all are lost all of great need for the cross Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross God
7: made me and you
9: Different colors and different shades All safely and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God displayed God made me and you For so all about you, all are lost All of great need for the cross Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross
5: Adam the ape man and Eve the ape woman Adam the ape man and Eve the ape woman (laughs) this is Ken Ham and we've produced a family-friendly Answers Bible curriculum over the past few years I've been increasingly hearing the claim from Christians that humans evolved they take evolutionary ideas and just say God directed the process but does the biblical text allow for this absolutely not you see each kind plant or animal was created to reproduce according to its kind one kind can't change into another kind and scripture plainly states that Adam was the first man and Eve was the mother of all the living so there couldn't have been anyone before them also Adam was created from dust not some kind of ape like creature and Eve was created from Adam's rib not an ape woman Adam and Eve did not evolve
6: There's so much more to discover about Genesis, Adam and Eve creation, and more at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
5: to our evolutionized culture and even to the church every Christian knows Jesus is essential to the gospel after all the good news is all about Jesus death and resurrection but the good news means nothing without the bad news and that means a historical Adam is also essential to the gospel you see we sin because of Adam and we die because the consequence for sin is death It's because of Adam's sin that we needed a saviour to die as a sacrifice for our sin. That's why Jesus had to die. So no literal Adam, no literal gospel. Sadly, many Christians dismiss Adam as a mythical character. But if there was no Adam, Jesus came to die for a mythical problem, and we only have a mythical hope.
6: Are you looking for answers to your questions about Genesis, creation, evolution, and the Bible? You'll find answers when you go to AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com.
9: A Mighty Fortress A Mighty Fortress
10: We need to be saved from the wrath of God. We need to be saved from the penalty of our sin. Um, We are guilty before God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And the wages of sin, death. So we owe a debt to God. And because of that debt, we deserve death and hell and the grave and nothing else. And there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to rectify that. Uh, Consequently, we need someone outside of us to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us.
0: The first one was named Raj.
4: Go on, beat it. Come on, get out of here. I'm just kidding. Seriously, you have to go.
11: you love the chosen. I get it. I get it. What Christian doesn't want to see Jesus face to face and hear him speak? But I think that there are three potent reasons that you should consider before you choose to watch the chosen. And number one, theology. It matters. Dallas Jenkins, he's an evangelical. He produces and writes the chosen. However, there are other influences on the chosen set. Between the cast and
4: crew and our distribution and marketing teams, there are over 200 people involved in this show. And we obviously don't demand that everyone connected to the show comes from an evangelical perspective. We don't even demand that everyone is a believer. As long as the content itself is faithful,
0: we're less demanding with those who help deliver it.
11: There's a Mormon producer.
0: Was there a reaction when a bunch of Latter-day Saints from Bit Angel approached you and were like, let's make this happen, you know? Oh, yeah.
11: um, There are also Roman Catholic advisors on set, and the fellow who plays Jesus is Roman Catholic. Now, Dallas Jenkins is fine with that sort of ecumenism because he believes Mormons and Catholics are our brothers who believe in the same Jesus.
0: The stories of Jesus we do agree on. And we we love the same Jesus. Um, that's not something that you often hear. Sometimes it's like, oh, you, uh, they that's, believe in a different yeah, Jesus. Than a statement. Yeah, no, it's the same.
4: I mean, I'll 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 sink or swim on that statement.
11: That couldn't be further from the truth. Mormonism teaches Jesus is a created being. That's heresy. Both Mormonism and Catholicism are work based systems. They do not believe in grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. Is there any rank heresy in the chosen? Not that I'm aware of, but if Mormons and Catholics on set are not offended by the chosen, it is certainly not explicitly evangelical. Are you sure you want to consume a subpar Jesus that doesn't offend people in unorthodox sects of Christianity? Number two, sufficiency. Yes, Jesus said a lot more than the words recorded in the Bible, yet the Holy Spirit determined that only some of his words should be written down because they are the only words we need for all of life and godliness. If you watch The Chosen because it helps you to learn about or love Jesus more, you're consuming an unauthorized source.
0: And when we add historical or cultural or artistic context and backstory into the show... That changes nothing about the Bible itself.
11: The Bible is enough to stir our affections, at least it should be, if we adhere to the principle of sola scriptura. There's a reason the early church rejected the apocryphal books. It's because they weren't the words of Jesus, and they knew the danger of consuming those books. And we should recognize that danger, too. And that leads me to number three blasphemy. The chosen is fiction that literally puts words into the mouth of Jesus that he didn't speak. I'm all for having a sanctified imagination, but anytime we imagine what Jesus might have said, we are headed into the Kenny Loggins zone. It's downright dangerous to put words into the mouth of God himself. Not only that, it's offensive. Let me ask you, if you wrote a book for your kids, with every single thing you believed that they needed to know, but someone came along and said, I'm writing a book with additional words that you might have spoken. How would you feel? Should you watch The Chosen, you have the liberty to do so. It just doesn't seem wise to consume Jesus' fiction, especially Jesus' fiction that's influenced by Mormon and Roman Catholic theology. So if you do choose the chosen, I contend that it would be wise to ask yourself these questions. One, did Jesus really say that? Two, am I in danger of believing apocryphal literature about Jesus? Three, is there a reason the chosen moves me when the Bible does not? Why isn't the Bible sufficient? Theology matters the sufficiency of scripture it matters when we blaspheme god it matters are you sure the chosen is the best theology for your soul
0: the church in america is going to suffer so terribly and we laugh now but they will come after us they will come after our children they will close the net around us while we are playing soccer mom and soccer dad. While we are arguing over so many little things and mesmerized by so many trinkets, the net even now is closing around you and your children and your grandchildren, and it does not cause you to fear. Think
11: of America like a football stadium. On the field, Christians, in the stands, unbelievers. Approximately 240 years People in the stands have been Cheering for the Christians on the field For the last decade The crowd has tolerated Those of us on the field But now we're entering a new era Where the crowd isn't cheering Or even tolerating Christians They are jeering us When it comes to Big time Major league You have to stand in awe in awe of the all-time champion of false promises and exaggerated claims religion this is why church history is so important our christian ancestors have already lived through absolutely everything we experience in the 21st century and all we need to do is look back and learn why early christians were persecuted to learn why we will be persecuted too then we can see how they responded and how we should respond to persecution reason number one abortion our ancestors didn't like it we don't either and the world isn't happy about that
2: when it was raped and she gave birth and she decided to kill her three-year-old child now if you look at this video you'll see a woman storming back to her car here well, she attacked pro-life protesters and even stole one of the protesters' hats. We were hearing everything unfolded this afternoon. Memphis police were even on the scene for several hours after protesters tell us the woman threw used tampons at them while yelling curse words.
11: Reason number two, exposure and infanticide, particularly baby girls or handicapped children left out to die. Our ancestors did not believe or endorse infanticide,
0: and we
11: don't either.
0: Um, The infant would be delivered. Uh, The infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, The infant would be resuscitated if if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother.
11: Reason... Number
0: three, our
11: early ancestors did not participate in the games in the Coliseum. Way too violent. They had a higher view of image fairs, and they wouldn't attend the dramas, which tended to be rather bawdy. Our ancestors didn't like violence. We don't either. The world doesn't agree. Reason number four, our early ancestors weren't fans of easy divorce, and we Christians today aren't either, and the world
3: mm, mm, mm. The biggest shake-up in divorce law for more than half a century has come into effect today. No fault divorces have been introduced, which means couples wishing to spit up no longer have to say which one of them is to blame.
11: And that leads us to reason number five, because early Christians didn't endorse abortion, infanticide, Violence, overt sexuality, easy divorce. Uh, The Romans thought they were rather self-righteous. Nothing has
0: changed. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said it's time, quote, for the church to take a hard look at itself and try to figure out how it can be a real partner in
6: this moment of moral awakening. A lot of people are leaving the church. A lot of young people are leaving the church, in part because the way... Has become is, you know, so judgmental, so alienating, uh, that they think to themselves, Well, I don't need that. I don't want to be part of that.
11: Reason number six poverty and poor education. While there were some rich and accomplished people in the early church, most folks, plain folks, even slave folks, mostly folks who didn't have much of an education, and the Romans thought the early Christians were downright dumb. Sound familiar? I'm an atheist. Sorry, Reverend. Um, But, you know, all religions, in my view, are stupid and dangerous.
6: Forty percent, 45 percent of the American people believe literally in Adam and Eve, believe literally that the world is only 6,000 years old. I mean, that's a shocking figure.
11: Reason number seven, if you think we're living in a postmodern world, the early church lived in a world that celebrated whatever deity you wanted to worship, and our ancestors believed in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And the Romans, they weren't nuts about that. Funny how nothing seems to change.
6: Everything that's wrong in this world, what you're preaching is just stupidity.
11: Reason number eight, a lack of emperor loyalty. Uh, Because the early Christians wouldn't confess the emperor as lord, they believed that Christians, they were not being faithful to the government, submissive to those in power. Has anything changed?
0: If the early Christians had been prepared to have Jesus simply included in the Roman pantheon of the time, then they would have managed to avoid persecution.
11: Reason number nine, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth century pagans, they believed in a pantheon of gods. Christians believed in the exclusivity of Jesus, specifically for the forgiveness of sins, and they found that abhorrent, that a man would die a criminal's death so that criminals could be forgiven. They hated that, and they still do.
0: Nothing has changed since the first century and the mocking and the scoffing of a crucified Savior hanging upon a cross, bearing the sins of his people. And the chief point of offense in the cross is the reality of sin, the message of sin, that Christ died for sins.
11: Reason number 10.
0: Politics,
11: our ancestors, they did not engage in affairs of state, and that was deemed as being disloyal, and the pagans didn't like it, and they don't like it today. Biblical principles are at their heart un American. Reason number eleven public education. Our early ancestors didn't dig what was being taught to children in the public schools. Guess what? We still don't. Guess what? The world is still offended by that.
0: I think Christian homeschooling should be banned. And
11: finally, reason number 12, scapegoats were needed. If the gods are unhappy with us, we're not going to take responsibility for our troubles. we got to blame somebody. That's what the pagans did then.
0: That's what the pagans do now. Down through history, you have a wrong idea of martyrdom and persecution. You think that these men were persecuted and martyred for their sincere faith in Jesus Christ. That was the real reason, but no one heard that publicly. They were martyred, and they were persecuted as enemies of the state, as child molesters, as bigots as narrow-minded, stupid people who had fallen for a ruse and can contribute nothing to society. Your suffering will not be noble. Historically, Christians
11: responded to persecution in five biblically authorized ways. They would petition, they would plead, they would pray, they would run, and they would die. Listen to these words from Polycarp, writing a letter to the church in Philippi. Let us, therefore, become imitators of his patient endurance, and if we should suffer for the sake of his name, let us glorify him, for this is the example he set for us in his own person, and this is what we have believed. The Bible is littered with exclamations that Christians should expect persecution. Paul, in Acts chapter 9, was told, hey, get ready for some suffering, Philippians, Philippians, 1 29 for it has been granted to you that for the sake of christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw i paul had and now hear that i still have 2nd timothy 3 all who desire to live a godly life in christ jesus will be persecuted so how should we prepare and react to persecution? Number one, expect it. Number two, teach your kids to be prepared for persecution. Three, remember church history and the countless men, women, and children who were burned at the stake for the faith. Number four, to get used to being jeered and hated. Number five, remember it is noble to suffer for Christ, and finally, use persecution for its intended purpose evangelism acts chapter 8 and on that day a great persecution arose against the church in jerusalem and they were scattered they left their homes for persecution throughout the regions of judea and samaria therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word Peter talked about this repeatedly used evangelism to share the hope that lies within you. That's the purpose of persecution. Should we be praying for persecution? No, that would be kind of. But well, let's pray that we can be the salt and light we are called to be when darkness descends. If you care to do a deeper dive into the Bible's take on persecution, we would like to give you our resource titled Persecution. It is a thorough treatment of Peter's first epistle on the subject of persecution so that you can be prepared and you can prepare your family. Did I mention our gift to you? Simply visit wretched.org slash persecution and stream away.
9: In the image of the beautiful most high god told them be
10: fruitful and multiply everything's yours but that tree do not try because in the day you eat it you're surely going to die i'm sure you know the rest yes they failed the test and ever since then the world has been a big mess so as we read the bible it's important that we see this there's only one hero and his name is jesus we
8: i
9: my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly, at times I wonder how this can be, surely it's because of the cross, we need paid the full penalty, and bore the burden of sin's great cost, I'm saved by grace and faith in God, I look to Christ and I trust he dies, so even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified, his work is finished that cannot change, and with this knowledge I am free, forever this grace it will remain, because of what happened on Calvary, as long ago as that was.
8: Beautiful, beautiful You never
1: change, never
2: change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful, beautiful You never change, never change That was Shyamalan with the Immutable And that's how I got from Truth Toll Radio And go out With The and Friends and the VIV really And bye for now
7: The V-I-V-L-E.